Dear Lord, our Father, we come again before you. We come with thanksgiving. We thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ, your eternal Son, who is the fullness of time, in the fullness of time became man, and was born of a woman, and was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might be adopted as your sons and daughters, as your people, as your family. Lord, we thank you that because we are your children, you have set your spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, and giving us assurance that we are truly your children and that you truly are our Father for the sake of Jesus Christ who has redeemed us. Father, we ask, bless the reading and the preaching of the Holy Scriptures as it goes forth this morning, that we may hear, that we may see Jesus Christ and his grace and glory and worship and serve him. It's through the same Jesus that we pray. Amen. First Corinthians 15. Again, I'll be, I'll be uh, beginning in verse 12. Please give your full attention. This is the word of our God. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord endures forever. As we continue this morning... Uh, we are nearing the end of this wonderful uh, letter, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians, and we've seen quite a bit uh, uh, that, that the Apostle has addressed as we've gone through these 15 chapters, 14 chapters leading into 15. Uh, this was the church, you'll recall, that was planted a few years earlier by Paul, Paul the church planter. Um, it was a church filled with problems, you'll recall, uh, problems of division and strife, 
problems with believers suing one another. Uh, there was gross rank sexual immorality going on there. And the elders were failing to discipline. They were failing to lead properly. There were a number of problems regarding the spiritual gifts, you'll recall. There was a lack of love. There was abuse of the Lord's Supper. They had a ton of problems at the church of Corinth. And one of the things we learned as we've worked through this letter is something of what it is to be a mature church, seeing the opposite of what it is an immature church. And one of the comforts that we derive as we look at this letter, as we've read 1 Corinthians, um, we gain, uh, one of the comforts we gain is knowing that there is no perfect church, not even one planted by the apostle himself. And as we came to chapter 15 a number of weeks ago, we saw how Paul uh, held the most serious issue that he's going to address uh, uh, the church of Corinth for the end. <clears throat> and he began to unfold that, this great problem that had crept into the church and that some people were uh, believed and were teaching that there would be no resurrection of our bodies in the last day. We saw a few reasons, a few possibilities of why this may have been the case, what have, may have fed uh, this error. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, why they may have taught that. And that great problem, no resurrection of our bodies in the last day. They were influenced by the philosophy of Plato, uh, this Platonic teaching that taught that the true you is your soul, not the body. The body is bad. Matter is not good. That's the problem. And the problem is that the soul is imprisoned in the body. The body, physical things are evil, and the spiritual things are good. And so the goal in this belief system was to shed the body, to get rid of it, to be free. Well, this is emphatically not a Christian teaching. This is not a biblical idea. And the idea of just turning into bodiless souls and floating away, it's a platonic uh, belief. It's not a biblical belief. This kind of dualism is not biblical. The Bible teaches the bodily resurrection from the dead. And it's kind of a redundant phrase. The word resurrection within it um, um, is, uh, means bodily resurrection. Bodily resurrection from the dead. This biblical truth is essential to our faith. Right? This is why we confess in the creeds. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And so to deny this teaching is to deny the Christian faith. And you have the Apostle Paul, the Pastor Paul. He desires to correct this issue at Corinth so they don't become a false church. And what Paul is really doing here, he's telling us about the end of time. I remember when I first began reading the Bible as a young man, um, there was very much a sense of end times things. It was very popular at the time. And I remember people would give me books like commentaries to read alongside with the Bible. And for the life of me, I couldn't make sense of what these commentaries were saying. I couldn't make sense of it. I thought I was reading the wrong place because of the speculative and far out nature that the commentaries bore. They bore no resemblance to the Bible. Everything was about the end times I remember um, one brother at that time tried to get me to go to a conference uh, that was called the Times of the Signs, right? It was all the rage. That stuff was inescapable. Um, Many of you may remember um, one or another wave of this enthusiasm um, in the the early 90s or at other times. I don't know about now, but mercifully, I think that obsession seems to have waned a bit. 
um, in, uh, in the church. But Paul here is very much talking about the end of time, the end of the story. He's giving us the end, uh, the ending of human history, redemptive history, where he says this present evil age is ending. That's where it's headed. And, you know, time goes on and on and on. And the faster uh, it goes, the older you get, the faster it seems to go. I remember as a young child, um, in my mind, thinking that summer break was equal to the school year. Um, this concept of time, it just goes and goes. But it doesn't go in a big circle. It's not just a cycle, uh, which was very popular at the time. The Bible, the Bible teaches that time is linear. There's a beginning and there's an ending. It will end. And, that, and Paul tells us here where it is all headed. And that's the big picture of this passage. right? Remember, as we heard uh, in the New Testament reading this morning, how the chapter began, the fact of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus risen, seen by many people. And then Paul addresses this issue beginning in verse 12. Again, verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. And he explains that you can't have one without the other. If Christ is raised, so too will all those who are his be raised. In the last day, remember that organic connection between his resurrection and our resurrection. The two are part of the same event, the great resurrection harvest. Christ, the first fruits that comes. When the harvest comes, the first fruits come, and it's a guarantee that the rest of it, it will happen. And if Christ was raised, we will be raised. But if he will not be raised bodily, if we will not be raised bodily, Christ was not raised bodily. And so Paul went on to discuss the necessary consequences if Christ was not raised. And we emphasize, remember, as Paul emphasized, either the tomb of Jesus was empty or the gospel of Jesus is empty. The resurrection of Jesus is not of little importance. It is all important. And in verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15, we read those glorious and wonderful words that make all the difference in the world. Verse 20 says this literally. It says, but now Christ has been risen from the dead. How glorious is that? Paul unfolds the if then. He unfolds the if then. If Christ not been raised, then this, then this, then this. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Right? In our culture, we are entering into, uh, coming into the Easter season uh, fairly soon. And the resurrection is what Easter is all about. When the first fruits of the harvest come in, the rest will necessarily follow. And it's important for us to keep in mind and to speak often of this, the truth of what the Resurrection Sunday is all about. And tell it to our children and tell it to ourselves. And get in the habit of speaking with one another of spiritual things. Of things that are important, of true things, especially the resurrection of Christ and of us on the last day. Because if we do not do that, someone else will speak to our minds and bathe us in the lies of the devil. We are bombarded by this in our culture. And all of us know this. 
We've all been exposed to the various lies about what Easter is, some horrifying and some ridiculous. Uh, We saw last week the, the liberal theology, the liberal theological lie I mentioned last week that says there was no literal, true, real resurrection of Jesus. And that it doesn't really matter anyway. It says that Easter is the day we remember the ethical teachings of Jesus, his moral example. We just need to put those morals into practice. And when we do, Jesus is raised in our hearts. Yuck, right? This is the kind of thing that they say. It's awful. It's a non-Christian theology. It's a wicked lie. It's beyond funny and ridiculous. It's wicked because the problem is that outwardly moral people who are not united to Christ through faith, they remain in their sins and they will perish. And so making people moral while on their way to hell is not a benevolent thing. It's a wicked thing. And it ends up that in an effort to make religion more palatable and remove what people uh, might find objectionable or be offended by, it ends up denying the most essential tenet of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is doctrinal cyanide hidden in the honey of moralism, but it still yields death. And so there's the liberal lie, and then there's the pagan lie of Easter that, that says that it's just a celebration of spring and of new birth. Right? All things have died in the winter, and they come alive in the spring. And it's, the thing, uh, it's a universal concept of a fresh beginning after a cold winter. Pagan lie. And then there's the secular culture cultural lie that we live in. It kind of mashes all these things together. It doesn't really make sense at all, and you end up with a chocolate rabbit in, uh, laying, Easter, laying eggs. And then there's the Corinthian error that Paul is addressing. The error that, uh, of the resurrection. Right? They believed that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, but they denied that believers were going to be raised from the dead. Right? Why, why reunite again to the, to the dirty body, body once it's been in prison, uh, released from the, the prison house of the body? They didn't want to be resuscitated like a zombie or something. They didn't understand that the resurrected, glorified body is not resuscitation. And so there's the liberal lie and then the pagan lie and then uh, this error of Corinth, um, our cultural lie. And then there is the apostolic biblical concept of Easter. And Resurrection Sunday is really a better term, um, by the way, uh, but sometimes we're challenged uh, with cultural terms and norms. Um, But the biblical concept of resurrection is all about the new creation, the new creation that was inaugurated, that was established, that was launched with a specific historical event seen by many witnesses when Jesus literally, actually raised from the dead. And it's not merely about what God did in the past either, by the way. It's also about what he promises, what he promised and guaranteed to do for his people in the future. Hope for the future because of the facts of the past. And the resurrection, dear Christian, is about the cosmic goal of all of God's creation. The resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago was the first installment of the whole thing, of the whole complex, what this is all about. It was the first part of the first fruits 
of the entire harvest which is to come gloriously. And brothers and sisters, uh, by the way, this is far, far greater news, far more important news than anything you will see on the cable news channels or other news sources. This is far greater news. The cosmic goal of all of creation, the resurrection is what Paul is getting at here. And in this brief passage, these eight verses, Paul tells us about what God is going to do in the end. And it's remarkably all-inclusive, this short passage. And in telling us this, what he's doing, Paul's moving from the curse to the cure to the consummation. Specifically, we read of that great enemy of ours, death. Right? And that's, this passage is kind of outlined in that way. We might be able to get through all of this this morning, but what we see in verses 20 to 21, death's dethronement. The dethronement of death. Death is doomed. And then in verses 23 to 24, we, see death, we, we read of death's destruction. The destruction of death. And then finally, in verses 25 to 28, we read of God's dominion. His dominion, right? Death is doomed. Death will be destroyed. And God will have absolute, utter dominion. And notice how this is. Again, it begins, For as by a man, this is verse 21, came death. This is a reference to Adam. By a man, speaking of Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. You see the structure here of what Paul is doing, what he's laying out for us here. It's the structure of the two Adams, the two Adams. These two Adams are the most significant people in the entirety of the human race. Two Adams, the first Adam, and then the last Adam, Jesus. Later on in this passage, in verse 45 and 47, he's referred to this. The last man, the last Adam, second man. And it's these two Adams that in theology are referred to as federal heads. Right? They are the federal heads of whom they represent, the covenantal heads of who they represent. They're representatives. Adam, the first man, represents the entire natural human race. All those that followed him by natural uh, means. And Jesus represents all those whom the Father gave him. And it's important to be clear here. To understand clearly what is going on. Because the Bible is clear. When it says in verse 22, In Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Some people read that and they they cringe. right? This is not teaching universalism. right? Some people read this passage. Some people read, In Christ all shall be made alive. And they think, well, everyone without exception will be raised to glory. That's not the case. It's not the case. And we know this. We know it well in Scripture. Sadly, there are those who are lost in their sins and will suffer eternal punishment. And sadly, we know, sadly, personally, we know those who are lost, those who have been lost. But what's more, we just need to read the Bible, the passage well, and understand what it is saying. When we look at this verse, verse 22, uh, that adjective, all, comes after the names of Christ and of Adam. In those prepositional phrases, in Adam and in Christ, they limit the scope of the adjective all. Forgive me for the grammar lesson, but it's important that we understand this, right? 
those, those, uh, that adjective all is conditioned, it's limited by the phrases in Adam and in Christ. You see that? It's, it says all who are in Christ will be made alive. And only those who believe on the Lord Jesus are in Christ. Those are the two categories that Paul discusses here. You either you have a federal head of Adam is your federal head, or it's Jesus, one or the other. And for God to accomplish his great design and purpose for creation, of all his creation, all people, death must be dethroned. Death came by the first Adam in the fall, you know well. And it must be conquered, it must be overturned. When we first arrived here, the Garbarinos in Providence, um, shortly after, it seemed like in a short number, less than a year, we encountered quite a number of deaths in the congregation or those related to. Mrs. Garbarino lost an aunt, lost an uncle. I lost an uncle. My father passed away. And all of you know who've lost loved ones. You know how terrible that is, how painful it is. It just feels wrong. It feels unnatural. And that's because it is wrong. It was not originally part of God's creation. Right? right? Well, what is the declaration of Scripture? And he, all that he made was good. Mankind's physical and spiritual death is the consequence of sin. Consequence of sin, right? We know this, right? The wages of sin is death. It's not a small thing. And when the first Adam broke the covenant that God placed him in, he brought death upon himself and the whole, re- the whole race which he represented. And God placed Adam into a covenant of works. And if Adam kept that covenant, if he obeyed this probationary period, he would have earned the right to eat of the tree of life for himself and all whom he represented. And the tree, of course, was a symbol of the goal of creation, which was ultimate, consummate, glorification. Remember how God created. We're not going to take the time to read the passage in Genesis. But remember how he created in the space of six days and then the seventh day. Seventh day of rest. It was a picture of that rest, that ultimate, consummate rest, that glorified life, that graduated, ultimate life. It was the goal. The fancy word for this is eschatological. It's eschatology that we speak of. Creation was eschatologically charged. It was built into creation. That was the goal, that ultimate end, that upward end, the consummate end. And God told Adam, Adam, be faithful. He was told to trust the Lord, to obey the Lord, to have dominion over the earth, to name the animals, to work the garden, and to protect the garden. Just don't eat of that tree. But Adam was not faithful. He was not faithful. He broke the covenant. And rather than enjoying the blessings of the covenant, he incurred the curses of that covenant, particularly death. The curse sanctions of this covenant that God placed him in. And this death is separation from God. That's spiritual death. And the separation of body and soul, that's physical death. And Adam's fellowship with God was destroyed, was shattered. And all of Adam's natural descendants inherit this guilt, 
They are conceived and born in corruption and guilt. Psalm 51. And this is why contrary to every Disney movie that you'll see and everything that you'll see on the Hallmark Channel and even Master Yoda himself, we are not to trust our feelings. We are not to follow our hearts. We are not to trust within. Our hearts and our feelings are distorted and disjointed from the fall. We are to trust the word of the Lord that he has given us. It is God's word that is to correct us and direct us and to protect our sin-stained hearts, minds, and wills. We affirm the truth of this word. We sit under it. It scrutinizes us. We don't stand over it. It is our grounding. It is our foundation. It is food for our souls. Again, it is God's corrective, protective word. And that word tells us that this fallen, cursed world, things are not right. Things are not as they ought to be. And we feel the press and the pinch of this. Every time we lose someone we love, it's not just famous basketball players. All of us encounter this all of the time. Death, separation from God, and the separation of body and soul, it is awful and it is ugly and it hurts. Man was meant to live for something far more than a handful of years in a fallen world and then die. But since the fall, what is the refrain? This person lived so many years and he died. And so and so lived a number of years and they died. And he died, and he died, and he died. That's the refrain after the fall. And that has continued on and on down to our own day. Because the world in which we live is a fallen world. It is a cursed creation. And we read there in our text, For as by a man came death, for as in Adam, in Adam all die. And that's truly a bummer. That is really bad news. But praise God, the failing of man didn't vanquish the glorious goal of our glorious God, right? His creation was, again, eschatologically charged. It was built with the end in mind. Creation itself was built with the end, not just the end chronologically, but ultimately, upward. And so God in his grace sent the second man and the last Adam Jesus Christ, the Son of God, very God of very God. And he entered into his creation, and he took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. And he came to keep that covenant that the first Adam failed to keep. And Jesus was perfectly faithful in keeping that covenant. And where the first Adam fell, and he earned death for all those in him, those whom he represented, the last Adam earned life for all of those who find themselves in him, all of those whom he represents. And Jesus did this how? He did this by both his perfect obedience and by his removing the penalty of death, by suffering that penalty on the cross in our place. He obeyed and he paid. His active and his passive obedience. And in these two great things 
it, it is they that uh, who are, those who are in him find themselves having eternal life because of what Jesus did. So the question is, who's your head? Right? Who's your representative? Who is your covenantal federal head? Which Adam are you in? No more important question, right? Proto-Adam, right? Or eschatological Adam, Jesus Christ. One of my professors uh, wrote a book um, regarding some of these things, and uh, he wanted to title it uh, Protology and Eschatology. And his wife encouraged him, um, uh, Protology sounds like some, some medical thing that you don't want to draw reference to. Uh, and so he, he called it uh, rather... Last Things First. It's a great book. Uh, you should read it. Um, but this truly makes all the difference in the world, right? All the difference. And in these two verses, verses 21 and 22, uh, that Paul is talking about, he's talking about these two atoms, this structure. In our great enemy, death, came by the first atom. Protological atom. And by the same enemy, was given a death sentence. The same enemy was given a death sentence as it was destroyed it was, it was dethroned, rather, in the death of the last Adam there 2,000 years ago on a real wooden cross. And though as believers we do not grieve as those who have no hope, dear friends, it still hurts. It agonizes our soul. It is hard. But praise be to God. Paul is telling us here that death has been dethroned. It has stood trial. It is awaiting this certain day of its execution. It is a certainty. The dethronement of death has been given in the death and resurrection of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And we know this because of the record of history. Many people saw the risen Lord. There are many other reasons we know it. And how glorious a thing. How glorious. What glorious news to know that God will one day make all things right. Glorious. Indeed. And that all the evil in this world, even death itself, will be overturned and destroyed by virtue of the victory won by Jesus in his resurrection. Oh, what a glorious thing. What glory. And that's the second point that naturally follows from the first. Death's dethronement and then death's utter destruction. We'll go on to finish this passage, the remainder of it, uh, in the weeks to follow. But for now, for right now, dear Christian, please do not hear these truths as no big deal. Don't hear them with a yawning indifference or as over-familiar Christian concepts that we throw around. Because the glory and the wonder of what the Father did in Jesus Christ, the amazing and earth-shaking wonder of it all, is not that there is simply a God out there who did these things and freed a people from corruption of death and sin and guilt and pain. No, brothers and sisters. The glory and wonder of it all is that he did it for you. He did it for you who trust in him, for you who named the name of Christ, who have tasted and seen that he's good, who have trusted him, who are in him, who are his. You who have been united to Jesus 
and will one day will be resurrected on that last day. For you, there is no more wonderful or glorious promise or certainty. Because for you, brothers and sisters, you lay hold and you cherish the day when the promise comes to pass. One of the most glorious passages in all scripture, Revelation 21. Then he saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What does it say? And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. What a glorious promise. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Oh, what a day. Oh, what a day. And you will spend eternity before the face of God in worship and song and delight with Jesus. For he must reign. Do you know this to be true of yourself? Do you know this to be true for you this morning, right now? If you do not, I implore you to trust and believe and repent. Nothing remains to be done but that. Christ has done, he has accomplished all that was needed. In Luke 1, chapter, verse 68, we have the father of John the Baptist, remember, he was made mute. He couldn't speak for all this time. And then when his tongue is loosed, what does he say? Praise be to God, for he has accomplished redemption for his people. Place your faith, your life in him, believe on him where there's life to be found and there alone. And in his mercy and his love and his tender care, he will no wise turn you away. Trust him, worship him. And for those of you, dear Christians, who have tasted and have feasted on the glories of the gospel, and you know Jesus as this death-destroying redeemer and king and prophet and priest. Praise him afresh. Praise him afresh and praise him anew. And may we all be strengthened in our hearts as we do so. And may we rejoice always and testify always, not one time of the year, but always that Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. Amen.